This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Gospel of Mark called Jesus in Action. Well, let's begin with a word of prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, just as the disciples needed Jesus to take them aside and explain the meaning of these parables, so, Lord, we need the Spirit of Christ now to open up our hearts to receive and understand and benefit from the precious gift of your word. We need to hear your voice, most of all, God. So speak to us, speak to your children. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, here we are with that interesting twin set of parables. Now, parable, to begin with, is just a short, a very short story. It's almost like a metaphor using very ordinary, everyday language. If you look at Jesus' parables, they're quite simple. A woman sweeping her house for a lost coin, some seeds in the ground, leaven working its way through dough. Jesus uses these very simple ordinary, mundane stories to point to the great truths of the kingdom. And Mark tells us that this was Jesus' ordinary way of speaking. Jesus never spoke without bringing forward these illustrations, these stories about what he was up to. What we have today are two simple related parables about the kingdom, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is simply the reign of God. God is on the throne and he is at work exerting his authority around the world, taking everything that's wrong and evil and deathly and turning it into life and joy and service to God in the peace of his reign. And so we have these two very simple seed parables today. They're distinct and yet they're related. The parable of the mustard seed is a a parable of contrast from a very tiny, minuscule seed to a large bush in the garden. And the parable, the first parable of the growing seed, is one that emphasizes not so much the contrast between the beginning and the end, but the slow, steady, and inevitable growth of the kingdom of God. And so today, what I've done is I've taken the liberty of extracting seven implications from these parables. I mean, seven is the number of perfection, so no one can possibly quibble with this sermon today. Seven theological and ministry implications from these two parables. And they're, they're right there, plainly on the page. It's, it's not a matter of tremendous imagination, just reading this from the scripture. And the first principle is this, that the kingdom grows from tiny beginnings. The kingdom grows from the tiniest of tiny beginnings. This is what Jesus is bringing forth in the parable of the mustard seed. The smallest seed, not literally of every seed that exists on the earth, but the smallest of all seeds that anyone would ordinarily plant in their garden. And I could have brought some along today and showed them to you, but you would not even have been able to see it. Because a mustard seed is only maybe a millimeter in diameter. It takes about 750 mustard seeds to make up a single gram. Mustard seeds are absolutely tiny and minuscule. 
And that teaches the lesson that the beginning of the kingdom is often disappointingly unspectacular. It's disappointingly unspectacular. And we love and we crave spectacle, don't we? We want something humongous and exciting. Fireworks and bombs bursting in the air. We want huge parades of tanks going down the central square. We want excitement and what seems to us the evidence, power, and glory of God. And surely, if there are volcanoes erupting on the horizon and letters of fire burning in the sky, surely then, surely then we would see the power of God at work. We want signs, and we want power, and we want glory. And God, instead of doing those things that we expect and we label as the certain signs of God at work, God instead works through the tiniest and humblest and most mundane beginnings. Disappointingly unspectacular. I was part of a a small church plant in eastern Canada, and we we were charismatic. Oh, yes, we were charismatic. And every Sunday, we would be prophesying amazing things over ourselves. There were a lot of things about fire and a lot of things about water, like huge tsunami waves of revival sweeping over us. And I'm sorry to say that none of that ever actually happened. We were so excited about the, the great and the spectacular and the glorious that we failed to see, we failed to perceive that God most of the time works in very quiet and very subtle and very ordinary ways. And of course, we would love to see revival sweeping across this nation and sweeping across this world, would we not? And sometimes the heavens open and the fire of the Holy Spirit descends and praise God for those times. But that is not normally how God has worked over the last thousands of years. God works in small ways that require the eyes of faith to perceive, not what human sight demands. In his book called Ordinary, subtitle, Sustainable Faith in a Radical, Restless World, the theologian Michael Horton says this, the tendency of the evangelical movement has always been to prioritize extraordinary methods and demands over the ordinary means that Christ instituted for sustainable mission. We want excitement. We want stuff that's radical and blows your mind, and it's clear for all to see. But God's work normally is through the mundane, steady growth of his kingdom from the tiniest beginnings. What we are doing here today is not outwardly impressive. There are no news cameras parked outside. This is just the small beginnings of the kingdom. And no one here, I apologize, no one here looks outwardly impressive. No one here is glamorous. No one here is filthy rich. No one here is a celebrity. We're not enormously gifted. We're just ordinary people, men and women and children, that God has chosen to deposit this tiny and almost invisible seed of the kingdom within. That is the humble, ordinary work of the kingdom. I mean, it is, it is humbling, isn't it? 
that God does not choose to use those who are impressive by the standards of the world. Not the wise of this world, not the wealthy, not the powerful. God has deliberately chosen the weak and the ordinary and the small to show forth his glory. He wants nothing of human power to distract from what God is about. And there in that tiniest of tiny little seeds lies all the DNA of the kingdom. It's all there, just in miniature, all packed into that tiny little seed, so unimpressive, so easily ignored, but yet within that seed is the very power of the kingdom of God. That's my first point. The kingdom grows from tiny beginnings. The second point is this, that the kingdom grows without human help. Listen to this from the first parable. Here's the farmer. He sows the seed. And then Mark tells us that night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows. Night and day, he goes to sleep. He wakes up. Whether he's sleeping or waking, that little seed hidden in the ground is doing something, isn't it? It's slowly germinating and coming to life in the ground. And it's completely without the contribution of the farmer. He's not passive. He's doing his business. It doesn't say he's doing nothing. He's getting up and going to work and doing his thing. But whether he's awake and working or whether he's snoring away in his bed, the seed is growing. And whether we are awake or asleep, the kingdom of God deep below ground is growing. And there is a power at work and it does not depend on us. It doesn't depend on us. I mean, that's a humbling truth, but it's also a very relieving truth. It does not depend on us. And it is amazing when you look carefully at Jesus' teachings about the kingdom in the gospel, he talks about us seeing the kingdom, he talks about us receiving the kingdom, he talks about us entering the kingdom. But Jesus never talks about us building the kingdom. We do not build the kingdom. We do not establish the kingdom. We do not grow the kingdom. It has nothing to do with human work or human contribution at all. The growth of the kingdom is completely 100% by the Spirit of God. Now, yes, we are called to serve the kingdom, to live out its values in our lives, but make no mistake, that too is the power of God, the power of the kingdom working through our hearts. The kingdom is not thank God, not something that we do. I mean, you can go all through the Psalms. You don't even have to go into the New Testament to see this lesson. Listen to this from Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Pointless. Unless God's building the house, we can sweat and toil all in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. Might as well not even be there on the walls. In vain, pointless. It's in vain that you rise early and stay up late toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. And while we're sleeping, enjoying the sleep of God, the one who watches over Israel, the one who watches over the kingdom, he is not slumbering, he is not sleeping, he's making sure that the kingdom grows and progresses. 
And man, we always have this fleshly temptation, don't we? To start by the Spirit and then to get tempted and to think, well, God, God really needs me on his team. Obviously, God is not fully on the job, and he seems to be making either some bad decisions or he's overlooking some things. And he really needs Bart here to help him out and set things right. Do you remember the story of Uzzah in the Old Testament? David was all excited about bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. But he wasn't careful in reading God's instructions to the Levites about how the ark was to be carried on long poles by the Levites. He loaded it up on an ox cart. And as the cart was making its way to Jerusalem, with people dancing and singing, the cart went over a bump, and the ark started to slide off. And this guy Uzzah, horrified that the ark of God was about to tumble into the dirt, reached forward to stop it. And instantly, he was struck dead. Such is the terrifying holiness of God. A lot of us are like Uzzah, aren't we? We look around, and the kingdom of God does not seem to be be progressing the way we would think. In fact, it seems to be in danger in a lot of places in the world, according to our judgment. And we want to lean forward and put our hands on the ark to prevent it from sliding into the dirt. And God wants us to know this is his ark. This is his kingdom. He does not need our help. The glory is going to be God's and God's alone. And yet our temptation as a church, as Christians, as individuals and families is always to depend on the arm of man, to look at our budget, our money, our resources, our plans, the people we have in our church, the connections that we have, oh, there's some celebrity out in the world. Surely, if we could get that person on board, that could really help the kingdom of God. And we put our trust constantly in our own efforts and in the efforts of gifted Christians and leaders around us. And it's so easy, isn't it, to take our eyes off of Christ alone and to put our trust into some kind of movement or some kind of powerful, gifted, charismatic leader. And what will always happen, I guarantee what will always happen is that person will disappoint you. You will be disappointed. And it is so sad and so tragic and grievous that in the news lately, it seems more and more in the last few years, highly respected leaders are falling into some kind of sin and having to be taken out of their ministry. And people's faith is is shattered. They're dumbfounded when they discover this news. And maybe it's a mark of our own misplaced trust that we're leaning on a broken reed that surely is going to snap if we put our weight on it. There is only one person, one leader, and one shepherd who will never, ever, ever disappoint us, who will never have to resign from ministry, and that is Jesus Christ himself, the king who rules over the kingdom. Psalm 146 says, Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. Don't be so foolish, people. Don't trust people. Because really, what can human beings do in terms of the power of the kingdom? There is a great deal that farmers can do. And it is remarkable. If you look into the kind of technology that's used in horticulture and agriculture today, if you go online and go on YouTube and look at all these really cool machines, these elaborate, humongous machines that specialize only in digging up and cleaning carrots or something. There's some really cool technology out there. 
But do you know what? Despite all our technology and despite all our science and despite all our efforts, farmers are still at the mercy of what happens, the miracle of life in that minuscule little seed in the soil. And so are we in our ministry. We can do a great deal, it seems, without the Spirit of God, but we cannot bring dead people to life. Only God can do that. Think about the book of Ezekiel and that vision Ezekiel has of the valley of dry bones. And God asked the prophet, look at these dry bones, a whole valley filled with skulls and femurs. And he says, and not only that, they're dry bones. They've been there for a long time, withering under the sun. And he says to Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? And with all our wealth, as a church, and with all our technology, and with all our technique, and our ideas, and our books, we are very tempted to think we can go a fair ways ourselves by human effort. I mean, we can assemble these bones together and organize them and group them. We can put beautiful and attractive clothing on them. We can even wire them up and get them moving animatronically. But we cannot do the one thing needful to breathe the life of God into their nostrils. And neither can the church, despite all of our technology and all of our social media and all of our theology, we cannot make a single person come to faith in Jesus. We cannot make a single man or woman or child be born again. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And we have to repent before God of all the things we have attempted to do by our own effort. There's an amusing story about the medieval theologian St. Thomas Aquinas. And it said that, I don't know, 1300 or so, he went to visit the Pope. And there he was in the Vatican, and he walked into the Pope's offices, and the Pope was sitting at his desk counting a huge pile of money. And the Pope smiled at St. Thomas, and he said, Well, Thomas, the church no longer needs to say, Silver and gold have I none. And Thomas said, That is very true, Your Holiness. But neither can she say, rise and take up your bed and walk. We need the miraculous power of God. More than money, more than technology, more than any human gifting, we need God himself to be at work. As Jesus said, apart from me, you can do not everything, but quite a bit. Is that what he said? Apart from me, you can do just a little bit? No, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Zero. Zilch. Ara. Nothing. We cannot do anything apart from Jesus. And so the humbling truth is that there is nothing we can do with our human strength. No matter how great our power, we cannot succeed. But on the other hand, no matter how great our weakness We cannot fail because the seed is growing. Whether or not the farmer is awake and working or whether or not he is asleep in his bed, the kingdom is growing. I had a pastor friend of me who who gave me some words of wisdom I have long thought about. He said this, Bart, your weakness is not an indictment, but an invitation. We feel guilty that we're weak, don't we? We feel ashamed that we can't do everything we feel God's calling us to do. And we're a little bit worried that God is disappointed or angry 
that we do not have all the skills and resources we wish we had. Your weakness is not an indictment. It's an invitation. God knows you are weak. He made you weak deliberately so that you could depend on the power that comes from God alone. So the kingdom grows without human help. And thirdly, the kingdom grows despite our ignorance. The kingdom grows despite our ignorance. Notice that the man, the farmer, it says that the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. Verse 27. The seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. The fact is, we understand very little, very, very, very little about how the power of the kingdom works. There is far more going on below the soil than meets the eye. And we have to confess that we have pretty much no idea what is happening. I'm sorry if that's alarming to you coming from the pulpit. I have pretty much no idea what is happening with the kingdom. And you have pretty much no idea what is happening with the kingdom. And there are many people that will speak very boldly and very confidently indeed about what God is up to. The fact is, we don't really know. Something is happening. What exactly is happening? We cannot always say. We can very rarely say. And so often, isn't it true, so often we miss and we misjudge what God is doing in people's hearts. We miss and misjudge what is going on in our own hearts, don't we? On the one hand, we see people that seem like they're headed for great things in the kingdom of God. And surely, surely the power of God is with this man or with this woman. And then five years down the road, ten years down the road, they sadly disappoint us. On the other hand, we see someone who, some teenager who looks kind of feeble and weedy and, and pimply and awkward, and we think, I'm not too sure about that one. And then you meet them down the road, and they are a strong woman of God, a strong man of God. And we realize, oh, there was a seed of the kingdom at work in that life, that person who we might have been counseling, and they were struggling, and week after week it felt like we were dealing with the same sins, and they never seemed to grow. But yet, that little seed of the kingdom was at work in their hearts. The fact is that the wisdom of God is much wiser than the foolishness of man, isn't it? The wisdom of God is much wiser than the foolishness of man. The wind blows wherever it pleases, Jesus told Nicodemus. The wind blows where it pleases. Yeah, you hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. We feel the wind. We don't know where it comes from or where it's going. And so it is with everyone born of the Spirit, not born of human effort, but by the Spirit of God, a Spirit whom we can barely perceive most of the time. That is the power of the kingdom. So the kingdom grows despite our efforts and despite our ignorance. But here's the good news. Fourthly, the kingdom grows by its own power. All by itself, the soil produces grain in verse 28. That word all by itself might be the most important word in this parable. It's quite literally where a word automatic comes from. Now, it's clear the soil isn't actually doing it by itself. The only other time we come across this word in the New Testament is when Peter is in prison, and everyone's praying for him at the prayer meeting, and Peter, 
He thinks he's dreaming and an angel appears to him and leads him out of the prison. And it says in that story that the iron door of the prison, the gate, opened by itself. This was not an automatic door with a sensor, right? It opened by itself. Obviously, this is the power of God swinging that door on its hinges. And in the same way as every Jew and every person in the ancient world would have recognized, the miracle of life below the soil is the power of God at work. There's a hidden energy at work. And what appears small and frail and insignificant is going to overpower every force on earth because the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. See, God doesn't need our help. His kingdom does not need us propping it up. God is not one of those weak puppets held on his throne by a group of army colonels, okay? God, it's the power of God that inaugurates the kingdom, the power of God that sustains the kingdom, the power of God that protects the kingdom, and it will be the power of God that brings the kingdom to its triumphant conclusion. From first to last, the kingdom is guaranteed by the power of God. And so it's not that the farmer's activity is unimportant. It is important. God does use us in his kingdom, absolutely. But the farmer and us were totally dependent on outside factors. Whether the sun shines or doesn't shine, whether the wind blows, the rain falls, whether the soil is at work, and whether the seed does its thing. We have this treasure in jars of clay, Paul tells us. Why? So that we might perceive that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We would love to have much more impressive jars, wouldn't we? Wouldn't we? Beautiful, expensive jars encrusted with jewels and with elaborate paintings over, over them. That's what we would like to have. And God says, you know what? No, I'm just going to use this ordinary bucket, this ordinary cracked bucket, and that is what I'm going to pour my grace into. That is what I'm going to pour my power into so that none of you, when you share your testimony at the wedding feast of the Lamb, none of you will be tempted to believe about yourself or anyone around you that you had anything to do with the power of God at work in you. So it's okay to be a cracked bucket. It's okay to be a jar of clay because God has chosen to use us to manifest his incredible power. That is good news. Because you know what? It is tiring to play God, isn't it? When you take that responsibility upon yourself and your life and in your family and your ministry, trying to play God, it's, it turns out it's, it's hard work to be omnipotent. It's hard work to be omnipresent. It's hard work to be omniscient. We are not capable of being God. And maybe the reason we're so anxious and so burnt out is that we're trying to do God's job for him. And he's like, guys, seriously, it's okay. I, I can handle this. I have, I'm not stretched to my limit whatsoever. Let me be God and you be yourself and just enjoy my power at work in you. So the kingdom is growing by the power of God. That's the fourth one. The fifth one is this. The kingdom grows slowly over time. I mean, that's a very obvious point from the parable, but we need to make it clear. The kingdom grows slowly over time. Just like this plant is slowly and steadily growing, the kingdom of God is slowly and steadily growing. It doesn't happen all at once in an instant. It takes 
time. In 1980, Eugene Peterson wrote a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And the subtitle was Discipleship in an Instant Society. Discipleship in an Instant Society. And he says this in his book. We assume that if, we as Christians, we assume that if, anything, if something can be done at all, it can be done quickly and efficiently. Our attention spans have been conditioned by 30-second commercials. Now, that's actually quite funny because he wrote that in 1980. Probably a lot of kids here don't even know what a 30-second commercial is. Ask Grandpa and Grandma about that back in the day, the 1980s. I mean, 30 seconds. We don't even have time for a 30-second commercial anymore, do we? We get all angry if Netflix takes longer than five seconds to buffer. 30 seconds, wow, those were the good old days. They didn't even realize it then. Our sense, our, it's not difficult in such a world to get a person interested in the message of the gospel. We can get people interested in the gospel quickly and easily, but it is terrifically difficult to sustain the interest. There is great market for religious experience in our world, things that will excite people and stir them up, but there is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations would have called holiness. I think of all these youth groups around, like Youth Extreme 268, and we want something radical and right now and exciting, and it's really about a long obedience in the same direction. We don't want to be like those people that Dave was preaching about last week, the soil that sprouts up quickly and with great joy, but has no roots. The real test of our discipleship is not going to be this week or next week or even the week after. It's over the long haul. You might be in your teens or you might be in your 20s or even your 30s, but it's about the long journey, the long obedience in the same direction. And I mean, I could probably get us all fired up to do something crazy for God right now, And then we'd all be burnt out and cynical and discouraged. That's not what we want to do. We want to be a church that is here for the long haul, building into people's lives for the long haul. We want to be a people who last. As Jesus said, it's the one who endures to the end who will be saved. Patience and endurance and hope are not exciting. They're not sexy. They're not what attract our eyes. But... Those are the things that God, the Spirit of God, is patiently working at building into us. The Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. We don't want to burn out in the first 1,000 meters and then collapse on the side of the track. We need to pace ourselves to follow God over years and over decades. This afternoon we prayed a prayer that's over, a th- that's over a thousand years old. Think about that. A thousand-year-old prayer that people of God have been praying over generations. And I wonder if as Protestants, as evangelicals, if we're really so tuned to think in terms of centuries, let alone millennia. We have all this worship music that it's, it's like plastic and disposable. We sing a song from the 90s. It feels like an old Christian classic, doesn't it? That's hilarious. The 1990s, and that feels old. And you have to wonder, of all the books that belch forth from the Christian presses every year and all the thousands of worship songs that, that are put onto CDs or on the internet every year, what is truly going to last in the coming generations? What are we going to be singing 100 years from now? 
what are our grandchildren or our great-grandchildren going to be reading and thinking about in a century? Is there anything we're doing right now that is actually going to last beyond the next year or two? It's a disturbing thought. But the kingdom grows slowly over time, and we too need to have that long view. And then sixthly, the kingdom grows through distinct stages. In the parable, it first sprouts and grows, and then it produces grain. There's the stalk, the head, the full kernel, and finally the harvest. God is doing things. He's growing the kingdom according to a set plan. And the seed cannot just jump randomly between these stages. The kingdom of God grows according to a certain definite plan of God. And when you read the Old Testament and how God took thousands of years to prepare his people for the coming of the Messiah. The Bible does not start with the Gospel of Matthew. It starts in the book of Genesis, and God takes time over the generations through his covenant. And then he sends his son at last to his waiting people. And Jesus comes, takes on the form of a man, he ministers, he performs miracles, he teaches people. Then he has to suffer, he has to die, he has to be raised from the dead, he has to ascend to heaven to reign at the right hand of God, and finally, he's going to return to destroy the last enemy, death, and then hand all things over to his father. Those are some of the highlights of God's plan. And no doubt, God has certain other definite stages not revealed to us, but he's doing things in a certain order. And we get antsy and impatient if we're not at the stage we wish we were at, which is, you know, the exciting, the harvest stage when we get to reap what other people have sown. But God is working all things out according to the counsel of his will, which we normally do not perceive, only in retrospect, usually. When I was a kid, my dad, who never spent more than $1,000 on a car in his life, I'm sure, he was a university professor, he had this, he had this old maroon Ford Fairlane station wagon. And my parents had six kids. I have a brother and four sisters. And we would jam all eight of us into this little station wagon and go to church every Sunday. And my brother and I were, we had to sit in the back, like in the trunk. It was like a hatchback. No seatbelts in those days, of course. Those were cheerful times. And um, the awkward thing about sitting in the back, of course, is that you're facing backwards. And then when you're stopped at a light, you have to make awkward eye contact with the person behind you. Very uncomfortable. The other difficult thing, of course, is that you can't see where you're going. We could only see where we had been. And if we looked out the side windows, we could perhaps see where we were. We could not see where we were going. Fortunately, the steering wheel was not in the back of the car. That would have been disastrous. We didn't need to see where we were going. It was only in retrospect that we could see, oh, okay, this is where we've been. In fact, we took that little car on um, a camping trip one year. We drove from Vancouver down to the Grand Canyon, Days and days on the interstate, crammed into this little car, in the trunk, and it had everything we needed for two weeks of vacation. Cooler, tents, sleeping bag. We even had an inflatable boat with oars jammed in the back there. And so my brother and I were in the back of the car, and now all we have is this tiny little square of the interstate. We can't even see beside us. We can barely see what's happening behind us. We're just jammed in there aching and cramped and contorted. That's why I'm such a skinny guy to this day, actually. squeezed in the trunk of this car. And often, it's like that for us, is it not? We only perceive the kingdom of God, what's already happened, and even that 
we can only make educated guesses about what God was up to in things that have already happened. The important thing is that we're not driving the car. God is the one driving the car. He is the one controlling the kingdom. And we need to trust that even if we don't know what's happening, God has a plan. I would like to know that plan. I think it would be quite encouraging and comforting and uh, quite intriguing for me to know the plan. But obviously God does not think it very important that I know his plan. He doesn't think that it's very important that you know his plan. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Secret things belong to the Lord our God. What is revealed belongs to us and our children forever. We don't need to be worrying about driving the car down the road. We've got our own business serving God to be taken care of, and he's not too interested in gratifying our idle curiosity. And now, finally, seventhly, the kingdom grows up into dramatic proportions. It grows up into dramatic proportions. And this tiny little mustard seed, one millimeter in diameter that we started with, has grown up into the largest shrub in the garden. Quite startlingly large. At least this high, sometimes even higher. And there has been an expanding power in that tiny little seed that has burst through all barriers. And what has quietly transpired underground, completely hidden to our eyes, has now become fully visible. And this bush is so big, in fact, that the birds were perching in its sturdy branches. And this may well be an allusion to Ezekiel chapter 17, where God, talk, God prophesies about the Gentiles coming to Israel, meaning like trees nesting in the branches of God's coming kingdom. God has a great future at stake for his kingdom, even though we cannot see it. And nations may rise and fall, and evil empires may take over the world, but God's kingdom, small as it is, humble as it is, unspectacular as it seems, grows and grows and grows and grows. That is the power of God at work. So how do we take all this on board? How do we, how do we apply it? Well, I feel like there is, there is a rebuke in all this, isn't there? I, I feel it strongly myself. How much time do you and I spend praying versus planning? How much time do we spend waiting versus working? How much time do we spend trusting versus toiling? We just want to roll up our sleeves and jump into it and get things done. But for the kingdom of God to progress, we need our eyes on what the Holy Spirit is up to in this church and in this country and in this world. We need to be a people who are seeking the face of God. Do the practices of our lives demonstrate that we really believe that the power is all God's? Or is there disturbing evidence that we think that really in the end it actually depends on us and God, you know, can't totally be trusted to keep up his end of the bargain, and we need to kind of make sure the job is actually done. I feel personally rebuked and called short by the Lord for that, thinking how much time do I spend praying and trusting and seeking God versus depending on my own gifts and launching into what I think needs to be done. The kingdom is not of our working. It's a gift purely of God's grace. It will come to pass. It is growing among us even now. So let's bow our heads 
and pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.